Exodus chapter 1, reading from verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, I'll only say that once, When you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous. The the original language for the word vigorous is they are teeming with life. Life is just coming forth from them. And they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And then in chapter 2, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, She hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and felt, she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Father, may your words uh, speak to our hearts today. And may truth that is imparted, truth that is shared, uh, lead us in your ways through obedience and trust. In Jesus' name, amen. The preceding book of Genesis, uh, we are introduced to a God who makes a promise to a man named Abraham. 
In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, we hear the kind of promise that God makes to him. He says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Our text this morning is a text that reveals that the promise made to Abraham is being fulfilled, it is coming true. And it is a remarkable text in particular for those of us who know the story and the life of Abraham. Uh, God makes this commitment to bless him and to make him a nation in his 80s. And his wife is old too when God makes this promise. Not only are they old, but we are told in scripture that she had not conceived a child. And at that point in her life, uh, biology teaches us it is near impossible to have a child. But God makes a promise to unlikely people that he would from them bring about an incredible plan that he would bless them and make them a nation so that they may be a blessing to the world. And if Abraham and Sarah's frailty is not enough of a hindrance and their age is not enough of a hindrance to God's plan, God seems to almost go against his own promise when he says to Abraham, after they have a child named Isaac, I want you to sacrifice him back to me. In fact, when you read the story of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, you realize that the promise God has made to Abraham that was carried through from generation to generation at many times seemed to be so fragile, so close to not being fulfilled. But now in Exodus chapter one, verse six, we read Joseph, who is the son of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham who's gone before him and all his brothers and all that generation had actually died, but their offspring were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And in Exodus chapter 1 verses 6, we start to celebrate that even though God made a promise to unlikely people and even though there was temptation and struggle and even sacrifice involved in this particular moment, it seems like God's promise is going to be fulfilled. But then... Comes verse 8. For those of you who know biblical history, you know that Joseph, because of the, uh, the envy of brothers, is, is kind of sold into slavery, into Egypt. And through a really, really interesting narrative in which he works in the home of, a, of, of one of the, the people of Egypt and, and whose wife looked at him one day and thought, he is fine, and not just good, but good looking, and desired to have a relationship with him, concocts this lie and, and has him in prison. And he's in prison through, uh, I, I don't have all the time to go into all these details, but in prison where he, he befriends people who work for the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and, 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 and through a rather remarkable story of being imprisoned and falsely accused, this, this Hebrew, the son of Abraham, finds himself second in command in Egypt. 
And in fact, he, he interprets the king's dreams and saves the entire Egyptian nation from starvation by, by saying, famine is coming, we need to store grain and be ready for it. And he's given authority and he's given power. And as he died, his offspring continued to live rather well in Egypt. But in verse 8, all that the Hebrew did is now being forgotten. The new king cares nothing for what has been done. You know, my wife is going to appreciate my next statement. You know, when we forget our history, or we forget the things that have gone before us, the kinds of decisions we may make going into the future may be very ignorant and detrimental decisions. A new king... Ignorant of what has happened before. Ignorant of the fact that this Hebrew, this Hebrew slave, literally was responsible for saving a nation. The, 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 the king would not be there but for Joseph. The king and, and his entourage and his people and his military would not be existent if Joseph did not do what he did at the time that he did it. But times change, right? And again, the promise of God seems frail. It seems in threat. There's a king who sees the blessing and the growth of the people of God, which is the fulfillment that God's, of God's promise to Abraham now sees that very blessing as a threat. Harsh labor. He oppressed them ruthlessly. Those two words are used repeatedly to describe the kind of oppression that this king is bringing about on the Hebrew people. But as their their labor intensified, the more they grew in number. You know, the harder Pharaoh's slave masters beat them, they'd come home. You know, he'd think that they'd, they'd be too tired to continue this prolific lifestyle that they had. But instead, they came home and, and wives said to husband, oh, I know it's been hard today, and comforted them. And this nation continued to grow. The more oppression, the more they grew. Some of you are not with me today because that was rather funny and you didn't catch it. <laughs> And so, like most threatened leaders, like most fearful leaders, the leader decides that he would use his influence and his power to take it one step further. Not, you, clearly, this oppression wasn't working, this forced labor wasn't working, so he was going to start to, 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 to go right after the heart of the problem in his opinion. And he speaks to two midwives. He says to them that when you're attending to the Hebrew woman when they have babies, if they are male, kill them. You see, Exodus chapter 1 and 2 is, is that space and time where, 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 where the people are becoming slowly the people of God. And yet they are clinging to a promise that was made that at this point in time seems so far away. And on the other hand, they are caught between the, 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 the crazed leadership of a Pharaoh who desires to control them and to keep them down. And into this incredible narrative uh, where God's promise is on the line, we are introduced to two people that I guarantee most of us have not heard their names or remember their names from scripture. And yet everything seems to culminate into this one moment to two people poorly named who are going to make a decision that will not only uh, cause the, the, the survival of children, but would lead to the salvation of people. 
It seems that as grandiose as God's plan is, he doesn't seem to be interested in protecting it so much so that there's no threat to it. As great as God's plan is for God's people, uh, you know, whenever God's plan is threatened, by the way, his promise to bless and and to, 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 to make Abraham's name great, whenever his plan seems to be threatened, it always is threatened, in most cases, I should say, by men. <laughs> and this is a side point, but I, I need to win favor on Father's Day with some women. And women seem to be the ones who, in this particular narrative, represents a faithfulness despite the potential implications for themselves. Uh, The question I guess that I'm asking this morning as I reflect upon the text is, what does it mean for us as those who have inherited the very same promise that God has made so long ago to a people that were oppressed, a people of no land? How do you and I today as Christians respond perhaps in our present circumstance to this reality that God has made a promise, but but things around us doesn't seem to indicate that it's actually happening. I was leading a small group on Wednesday night, and and it's a wonderful small group. I invite you to come. We're we're, we're like Israelites because we're traveling from home to home to meet right now. And um, there's a lady in this small group. Her name is Rosie. I don't think she'll mind me mentioning her, but I never have to ask Rosie what she's thinking. She always tells me, boy, you guys are such a tough crowd today. Uh, So uh, we were reflecting on God's delaying and why is God not returning? And and I suggested to her, I said, I said, part of what the narrative in in, in the gospels teaches me about the delay of the the, the landowner is that that he delays because he wants to give those tenants an opportunity to actually really figure out who he is. He's delaying, he's, 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 he's not coming right away because in doing so, he's giving opportunity for response. And she, without batting an eye, looked me in the face and said, I don't like that. I said, why not? She says, because everything around me seems to say things are getting worse. Everything around me seems to indicate that, 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 that things are falling apart, that, that it's worse than it was 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I, and I heard her and I had to acknowledge, you're right, it does definitely seem that, that perhaps the better answer is Jesus come back now before it gets worse. Do you know that, that, that throughout history, we have experienced moments like is happening in Exodus where it seems like things can't get any worse than this, but for the promise of God. That even in times where perhaps in our advanced age with our knowledge and our smartness and our smartphones and our smart cars and our computers and our iPhones and our watches that talk to us, we have, we have assumed that there has not been moments of what appears to be frailty and vulnerability to the plan and the purpose of God. 
Many of us may, may look around us and say, we've never seen things like ISIS before. We've never seen things like has happened in the last century before. But scripture will tell us time upon time that even in the most horrendous times in history where God's plan seems to be threatened by tyrants or the inadequacies of human beings, that his promise will be fulfilled. And oftentimes it's fulfilled through very ordinary people like you and me who can only respond to what is before us in obedience for what God has promised he will do. This is the narrative of scripture. This is the hope of the Bible that all of this is moving towards a redemptive end in which all things will be made new. So what you see and what you hear and what seems to be the end of things in many ways is but another opportunity for some midwives to stand up and say, I know what the king says I should do, but I fear my God more. I thought that was good. I I thought that was good. The right side is very holy today. You guys are on on fire. We got to get the spirit over here. You see, I, uh, I chose the title, The Butterfly Effect, based upon a, a doctoral thesis that was first introduced. I, uh, my, re- my research showed it was the 1970s. Gary's research, because I told him what I was preaching on, showed that it was much earlier. But can we agree that it was a doctoral research project by a mathematician? And he made this he made this uh, pronouncement, this doctoral thesis he presented to a bunch of academics, and, 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 and from what we understand, they didn't take him very seriously. He, he, suggested, he suggested that the, 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 the flap of a butterfly's wing could displace air molecules that could displace other air molecules, and, and eventually the consequential flutter of a butterfly wings and the impact that would have would eventually uh, not, not necessarily create a hurricane across the waters, but would impact weather patterns on the other side. That the very small, vulnerable, simple acts of a butterfly's wing could impact something far down the road on the other side of the world. In the mid-90s, I believe, and this is related to chaos theory for those of you guys like that kind of stuff, but, but in the mid-90s, we believe that, that some people gave him some credibility and he started to believe that perhaps he was onto something. And then there was a gentleman by the name of Andy Andrews who wrote a little book called The Butterfly Effect. And in this book, he categorizes extraordinary impacts of simple and courageous efforts. A great book to read if you have the time. Andrews reflects that when you go back, you can never really tell which efforts made the biggest difference. So, for instance, should Norman Bolog, and I know I'm butchering his last name, who developed high-heeled, disease-resistant corn and wheat be credited with saving two billion lives from famine? Or should Henry Wallace, the one-term U.S. vice president, who created an office in New Mexico to develop hybrid seed for arid climates, and who hired Borlaug to run it? Or should we credit George Washington Carver, who took a young Henry Wallace for long walks and instilled in him his love of plants? Or should it be Moses and Susan Carver, who adopted the orphan George as their son? Or should it be, well, you get the point. It is not that I am trying to 
imply that every action you take will have an impact like that we see in the scripture in which babies' lives are saved and a leader is preserved and a nation is set free. But if we know where the plan of God is taking us, and that it does not squarely rest upon our obedience. Look, uh, folks, I, I gotta say this. God's promise is not contingent upon us getting everything right. But his promise includes an invitation for God's people to participate in his purpose, to bring about the blessing of this world, to bring about the redemption of the world. And you participate, and I participate, when we respond in accordance with the fear of God that we see in these midwives, for they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. When is the last time for me and for you that the decisions we've made in our lives was governed by a fear of God? Perhaps this morning the scripture teaches many things that, for example, empires cannot destroy what God has promised. I think it also teaches that Pharaoh was rather ignorant to underestimate the power of women and their cunning ways. Not all women, but these two women. It's Father's Day, cut me some slack. But God's promise to Abraham and then to us descendants by faith through Jesus Christ relies upon men and women who fear the Lord. Men and women who will resist what is popular. Men of women throughout history that even partook in civil disobedience for that which is right. I cannot help but this morning think about those killed in a church in Charleston. And I cannot help but think the history that comes before that, the history marked by segregation and violence. And I can't help but think about men like Martin Luther King Jr. who stood in the face of defiant, racist, bigoted people and said that I fear my God more than I fear you. You see, I do believe that God's plan of redemption includes us, but does not revolve around us. I like the fact that these women are mentioned, but we are not heard. We don't hear from them again. We, we, we kind of just hear about what they did, and, and as we look back, we see the impact that their lives have made. But I wonder this morning if simple acts of obedience today are undertaken by God's people out of a fear for God and who he is, which destiny and life will be changed because of it that we may never know. You know, prayer is not the last resort of Christians. That's how we often treat it, isn't it? We go, man, I I tried everything. Doesn't work. Better pray. (laughs) 
I've tried it all. Now I, I only got one thing left to do. Now, prayer is the first thing we do. And we have prayed for God's leading. And we trust that God is leading. Uh, Kelly, as you come and, and as you prepare to lead us in some worship songs, uh, I want to give opportunity today in a, in a very different way for uh, corporate prayer. And if you feel led by God, led in your own heart to pray for us as a community and to pray that as a corporate prayer of our church, I invite you to come and take the microphone and do so. And um, as our worship team kind of just leads us instrumentally for a little bit, we'll do that. And then at the right time, Kelly, as you feel led, lead us in, in those songs. But let me, let me invite you now into a spirit of prayer and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for his provision for us as a community. Father, uh, obstacles can become opportunities for your work to continue to be done. If there's anything that is true about the Exodus narrative is that in times of adversity, you show your great power through very ordinary people. And so this morning, as we face transition, as we face an uncertainty, we certainly take time to just pause and keep things in perspective. Our sadness today pales in comparison to our brothers and sisters in a church in Charleston. Our loss of a space pales in comparison to the loss of a grandmother. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you care about us as you do care about those who've lost. And we thank you that by your Spirit you will be present with them as you are with us. But we are your people. We are a praying people. We desire to be a faithful people. We desire to be a church that is described as a church like a a city on a hill, a light that shines as a beacon of hope in a world in which people resort to violence, where hearts are broken and lives are lost. So, Father, grant us your grace in this season of life. In Jesus' name. space uh, and thank you that you will provide for us to to gather and to worship you because as you drew Israel out of their oppression we can be drawn out of this abundance into a new abundance you drew them out so that they could worship you and so Lord as we as we face an uncertainty I, and I just I can't get over the similarity um, I just want to declare that we trust you I want to thank you
so much that a church is more than just a building. And we thank you that wherever two or more are gathered, you're there also, God. And I pray that as we go through this time of transition, God, that the church will just become us together and being together no matter where we meet, Lord God. And, um, yeah, we just pray that this would be a chance uh, for you to close the gaps and the aisles in our church, Lord God, and just bring us closer together. Thank you for the opportunity through this trial to be able to get to the chance to see your glory and see how you provide for us uh, in this time, God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, because you are a God who provides all that we have and all that we need. We thank you, God, that you are a God who is present at all times. In the good times, we celebrate your goodness. And in the challenges, Lord, we are humbled and we recognize that we are not in control. But you are a God who is trustworthy and a God that we can easily put our faith in. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for this body of believers, Lord, that meet this, um, this group of people that you brought together. Lord, we know, God, that you have a place for us, not just a, a building, Lord, but a place as people to, to, um, to show who you are, God, to a, to a world. I know what you have done in my life, Lord. I'm not the strongest person physically, Lord, but I know that you are a God who changes hearts and changes lives and brings hope in dark places. When you cannot see where you're going, God, I have seen that you are a God that is worth following. So, Lord, I continue to follow after you, not knowing where we're going. I pray that as a church, we would... Know the one we are following, not knowing necessarily where we're going, but who we are with. Thank you, Lord. God, we pray for our board and leaders, and we ask for immense wisdom and discernment and clarity and unity and confidence as they boldly lead us through the coming days and weeks. Would they know that they are uh, loved and cared for and supported by this church community? And we ask for your 
grace and compassion as they uh, as they lead us in the days ahead. Lord, it's Father's Day, and so I just lift up all the amazing men in this congregation. I ask that you would open their hearts today, Lord, particularly, to see to see the ways that you have blessed them and gifted them and the way that you have made them a blessing and a gift to the people around them. I ask that you would be with those of us who don't celebrate Father's Day the same way. That you would open our eyes to see the people around us. Step in. For this community of people that we can celebrate each other even though we all struggle with different things we've all experienced loss of different things I pray for people whose fathers are just not as present in their lives as others and Lord may you may you continue to introduce people into their lives who can um, provide wisdom and guidance We thank you so much that we can go through things together and that you are with us in it all. And then even if we're meeting in a tent on a lawn, we can meet together and worship you. Father in heaven, we continue to worship you and praise you. We continue to give, give you thanks, Lord. And Father, we are so aware that sometimes when we are up against all the struggles, Lord God, that seems to face us, Lord, and our hopes are so cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested scheme. And Lord, we feel the urge within us to just submit to the earthly fears. God, we want to say, we will praise you in times of this, like these. Times when we don't know where we will go. It seems we are like the children of Israel. We come to the Red Sea and we don't know where to go. But God, we're going to choose to look up because you are the God who part the Red Sea. We are told today of the children of Israel, of the Exodus movement, Lord. Movement, as one songwriter said, of your people. And Lord, we have that confidence in you this morning, that you are the same God 
the God who allowed the children to go through so many trials and struggles and you brought them to the point where they had no recourse but to look to you. I think you have brought us as a church to that point now, Lord. And we want to say, you are the God who have come through too many times. And we're going to choose to let that put our heart at ease. Because we'll stake our very life, Lord God, on the knowledge that you're going to take care of us. You're going to give us that building that we're going to be able to worship in. And even if you choose not to do that, Lord God, we're going to worship you nevertheless. Wherever we are, it might be we might have to go into homes. Wherever it is, we are going to choose to worship you as we have never done so before. Because we know, God, that you are the eternal God. The God who spoke and the very world that came into being. And you are the God that we are worshiping. You are no less, Lord God. And we are going to choose to believe that you're going to give the leadership of this church a divine revelation and wisdom as to what they ought to do to lead your people. God, we thank you for this this morning. We thank you, O oh God, that you are the God who draw nearer to us when we don't feel like drawing near to you. You are the God who speak, Lord, and say, peace be still. Let that be so for our church today, Lord. And Lord, we want to say thank you so much for what you have done and what you are about to do. And we will choose to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 1. <clears throat> this is my prayer for us, not just as leaders, but also as followers. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Father, I pray for the leadership of the church that they would be listening and obeying. God, I pray for those of us who are followers that we would consider this to be pure joy. Tune our hearts to you, Father, I pray. Amen. just uh, pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the works that you have planned for us and our church. And Lord, uh, give us faith 
to just be able to let your will and your plans guide us. Give us eyes, Lord, to see that uh, this gives us opportunity, Lord, to find ways to serve in different ways, Lord, to bring more people involved um, in serving you and serving each other, Lord. I just pray that uh, you would give us faith to set aside our agendas, to give up on the things that we rely on day to day and think that everything's in order, Lord, and just faith that uh, things will come together with, uh, with your plan, because your plan is perfect, Lord. Help us to see that uh, we may um, we may not uh, we may need to look through the eyes not of a human eye and uh, rely on the things that we usually rely on Lord but uh, uh, see through your eyes the plans that you have Lord we ask this in your name Amen